from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Hussein Adie on December 17, 2018. I had interviewed Hussein in 2015 for his book Awakening, a history of the Babi and Baha'i faiths in Nauriz. He's now produced a new work entitled Foreigner, From an Iranian Village to New York City. It's an autobiography that tells his story as an Iranian Baha'i immigrant coming to the United States. The book is a series of vignettes set against the backdrop of a changing Iran, the plight of Baha'is there, and the tumult of the 60s and 70s in the United States. Hussein reads excerpts from his book in the interview. I asked Hussein why he decided to write this book. The purpose of writing this book was really to describe the plight of Iranian Baha'is, especially in mid-20th century and coming to 21st century, as far as being expelled or being forced out first from their villages and a small town and then moving to the big cities, as my family did after years of harassment. And then, of course, after the 1979 revolution, they were forced to leave the country and move to Western countries, Australia, many of them to Africa and South America and all that. I want to show throughout the book and using myself as an example that even though on the surface this plight and this exodus appear to be harsh and uprooting them, but it really helped them to develop a better life for themselves and their families. Not only materially, they became more educated, they made more money, they put their kids in best schools, but also the faithful one felt like they are serving the faith and serving the cause. As we know, really, the Persian Baha'is, at least a good number of them, in many communities around the world, has been a tremendous help uh, development of the faith. I use myself as an example. How was my family tradition in Nairiz and why we were forced out to leave after the kidnapping of my father and other harassment, and why eventually many of us left the country. Of course, I came also to pursue education and to have a better life. But if in staying in Persia would not have been so difficult, I could have stayed there and even much faster become a doctor or an engineer and would not have to go through all the hardship that I went through in America. So I'm speaking with Hussein Adier, educator and author of the autobiography entitled Foreigner, From an Iranian Village to New York City. You say the book describes the harsh society of rural Iran, and I can imagine that the harshness is probably on multiple levels. And I wonder if you could describe for us a little bit of this concept of the harsh society of rural Iran. Yeah. A life in a village in Iran, it only can be 
understood by a, a typical Western is by watching movies that describe the life of Jesus and the time that he was in Bethlehem and Jerusalem and all that. Because when I watch some of these old movies, when uh, Joseph was carrying Mary on the top of a donkey and moving from place to place, I thought, my God, my mother was doing this to us, moving us on top of a donkey. And the houses that they portray in the movies was so similar to the style of the houses that we build and we live in. So as far as the life in the villages and rural area of Iran concerned, and this I think apply also to a bunch of other Middle Eastern countries, it's very much the same as was maybe a thousand years ago. They haven't really changed. And it's also because it's really an agricultural society. The life has become so routine that the shepherds wake up in the morning, collect his goats and lamb and uh, hit the field and forest and then stay there day and come back. And this been going on for hundreds of years. And I witnessed it, and my father witnessed it, and my grandfather witnessed that. And of course, let's say in my village of Niriz, there was no electricity, there was no running water, there was no paved streets, there was no cars. When we were forced to leave town, my father and I got on the top of a truck that was carrying the bags of almond, and we escaped the uh, town. So this was the only transportation that was available occasionally to the town dwellers. So I just wanted to say that I had recently seen an Iranian film called The Color of Paradise, uh-huh. uh, which I highly recommend. And it, I think, depicts what you're t- describing about the rural life of Iran, even in the uh, 20th century. Yes, yes. And the unfortunate part, not only in the material sense, is poor people are suffering intellectually, emotionally, they also under tremendous pressure. Because, you know, in Islam, there are two groups of people. They either a leader, which is a mullah, which they supposed to be a learned one, or you are a follower. So 99.9% of the population are the follower. So a typical mullah in the village basically would tell these people what is right, what is wrong, what is heavenly, how you make it to the next life, and what this Quran is all about. And unfortunately, they have forgot the essence of Islam. And so it's really a byproduct of their main imaginations, and often to control the mobs and control the farmers, they do all kind of a ritual and practices in the mosque that is so unfortunate. So that really suppress and oppress also mentally and emotionally the population. So it's the blessing of the Baha'is, which I should mention is that, that at least they had this hope for the future that eventually the doors would open, eventually the humanity would see the light, and eventually with education and with equality of man and woman and with the search for the truth, they would break this yoke and this oppression of this limited-minded mullahs in the society. So I'm speaking with Hussein Adieh, educator, and author of the autobiography entitled Foreigner.
from an Iranian village to New York City. In the description of your book, you describe that it's difficult for a Baha'i to grow up in a Shia country like Iran. Can you tell us or describe for us the difficulties that you encounter? Yes. Islam is basically divided to two major sects. One are Sunnis, which are 90% of the Muslim population, and one is Shia, which is 10%. The 90% Sunnis were the one who, after the passing of Prophet Muhammad, they follow Caliph and Abu Bakr, and Shias are the one who believe that his son-in-law Ali should have replaced him, and they follow him. So countries like Iran and part of Iraq and Afghanistan, they are Shia. These people believe that the 12th Imam, after Ali, of course, within his family, one Imam came after another one, and 12th one somehow disappeared. And now they are hoping that he would come back, this Mehdi, this Qa'im, the promised one, would come back and the day of judgment would occur. Until this promised one has come, the mullahs and the Shia leadership are representing him in earth. So when somebody like Bob came along and he said, I am the promised one, and Baha'u'llah made a similar claim that we are the promised one, that the shops for the mullahs and others were basically closed because they were not representing the Qa'im anymore. So this was really the backbone of all their animosity and their hardship toward the Baha'is and Babis, because really it closed their business and their livelihood. But it's unfortunate that's how, that's how things work. When the righteous one comes, the unholy one would lose. Let me just do a little background. So the Bab declared in 1844 that he was that promised Midi or hidden 12th Imam. So that spurred this contention between the Bab and, and his followers and the reigning clerics at the time. The Bab and the Babi faith were the predecessors to Baha'u'llah and the Baha'i faith. A typical Baha'i community or Baha'i individual is living in a small village or town as we were living and is claiming that the promised one has come and there is no need to listen to Mullah or go to mosque to find your way to, the, to God. And this immediately set up a confrontation and a reason to be oppressed and subject to all kind of a, a harassment. And unfortunately, again, it's amazing that Islam, with all the loving kindness that Prophet Muhammad talks about in Quran, historically has become a harsh religion. And it's so obvious in a smaller town and places and even in the news that you see, unless you agree with them, you are infidel, you are unholy, you are not clean. In my village, there was no communication or not even touch between a Baha'i and a, a Muslim because the Muslim claimed that if they drink from the same cups that the Baha'i has drink, is a dirt and is, is unholy and is these are infidel who have used that cup. We were not allowed to use the public bath because if you go and use the public bath, the good Muslim cannot use it. Or you cannot approach a butcher and buy some meat because then a Baha'i may touch the meat and would 
all kind of these small items by itself may not sound any big issue, but when the totality of situation make the life intolerable. The question of marriage comes, and their marriages are not recognized. They are not allowed to be buried in a cemetery. They constantly in the streets are stoned, or their homes are attacked, and things like this. So I'm speaking with Hussein Adier, educator and author of the autobiography entitled Foreigner from an Iranian Village to New York City. My understanding, Hussein, is that you left Iran to seek better educational opportunities. What were your educational options in Iran? Most likely, now that I look back, because and I don't want to brag, I was quite advanced in my high schools and my early education. I could have received a decent higher education in Persia. I should also make reference here that we were religiously in the country persecuted, but the intellectual and governmental situation was also not very tolerable. During the Shah's regime, Baha'is suffer almost as much as they are suffering now. It was not so obvious and so direct, but we were subject to lots of harassment. So for me, it was really not only trying to escape from a religious persecution, not only to pursue my education in a better setting, but also escape from a country that I did not have a freedom to express myself. There was no toleration of my ideology, even non-religious ideas. And of course, those days, you know, early 60s, there was this wonderful desire to become a nuclear engineer, to go to space and to follow Einstein and von Braun and all that. So I remember a cute situation that I went to American consulate and asked for help. And with my broken English, I tried to convey to them saying perhaps me, America, Einstein, engineer, nuclear, university. So somehow I convey that, okay, this is what I want to do. This poor old lady who was working for American consulate used some directory and pointed to two universities that would have this nuclear engineering. One was Harvard and one was Columbia. She helped me to write a letter of interest and continue application. Columbia shortly, Columbia University in New York, shortly afterward rejected me. But then somehow I got accepted to Harvard. Oh my God, you should see the news spread all over country among my family members that Hussein is going to America, is going to Harvard, and is going to be a nuclear engineer. My father was so proud of me and all that. So I came to America to cut it short. I stayed in YMCA downtown Manhattan. And I was telling people, I have to go to Washington to register and find a place to stay. But they keep telling me, no, you have to go to Boston if you're going to Harvard. Can you imagine, Warren? I was accepted to Howard University. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Just a simple mistake of A and O. 
Yeah, but I mean, it's course, sort of divine intervention, right? I never became a nuclear engineer, but I, I became a very good dishwasher. Well, you also became an educator and started Harlem Prep, so you couldn't have started with a better situation. Yes. You know, as a foreign student, I have to go to school to maintain my visa situation. So I was constantly in pursuing degrees and education. I started with engineering, which I got a BS in liquor engineering. And then I figured out I really don't like to be an engineer. So I studied for a while to be a mathematician, and that didn't appeal to me. Somehow I managed to get to Fordham University and get the master in European intellectual history, which I loved. And then eventually, after getting involved in Harlem Prep and educational studies field, I got a PhD in education. And I tell you, Warren, I don't think so. I have used any of those degrees uh, <laughs> in, my, in my professional life, but I maintained my visa, student visa, for all these years until I married my wife who had the green card and God bless her, that was a big help. <laughs> so I'm speaking with Hussein Adier. He's an educator and author of the autobiography entitled Foreigner from an Iranian village to New York City. Now, I want to take us back to when you got off the plane or the boat or whatever it is you got off of <laughs> when you first stepped onto the soil in the United States, and I suppose that was New York City. You had described that your life was on the margins of American society as an immigrant. Maybe you could describe your situation stepping off into New York? Considering I was a village boy and a farmer, I think I did pretty good in terms of finding my way to America. Somehow I managed and I found out, probably with the help of somebody in American consulate, that is an ocean liner called Queen Mary that bring people from England to America for only $50. That was quite a deal to be able to come with a $50 expense. So I got myself a ticket. I went to England. I went to Southampton. I got on the ocean liner uh, Queen Mary, and I landed in New York after six days of traveling in the sea. And it's so interesting. Somebody was sharing the, my cabin with me. I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, the one who became a big TV personality and had the program called Life of Rich and Famous, but it doesn't matter. So he was my cabin maker. So we both landed in New York after six days of trip. And I knew that there was a very cheap hotel called YMCA that would charge you $2 a night. And it was on 34th Street, downtown Manhattan. So I moved to YMCA. I stayed there for a short time. And of course, I realized that I'm not the Harvard boy. Suddenly, the reality of life in New York began to hit me financially, emotionally, and all that. It was a tremendous loneliness in the 60s. First, you know, there was hardly anyone I could talk to. I missed my family. I had no money. I had some money left in Iran, but that was supposed to be sent to me gradually to pay for my education. So from the very first few days in New York, I started to search and look for a job and work. But then, of course, I have to maintain my student visa so I could not work full time. So I began to get a series of jobs. I became a 
bellboy in a hotel. I work in a factory. I work in a quality control in a chemical company. I work in the... Oh, I almost became an undertaker. There was an ad in a paper that they're looking for undertaker, which I didn't know what is undertaker. And they would pay me four or five dollars an hour, which those days was unbelievable. And there was no experience necessary. Of course, we don't need experience to deal with the dead bodies. So I applied for that job and they told me, okay, come to start working Monday. I told my landlady that from now on, she's going to have her rent on time would be no problem. And she was so excited and said, what are you been doing? So I told her I'm becoming an undertaker. Oh my God, you should see the expression worrying on her face. You know, there is some kind of fear or some kind of a people get upset to be close to undertaker, I think, at least those days. So he said, if you get that job, you're going out of my house. This was the end of me becoming rich in the funeral <laughs> house. And numerous other occasions, the life of an immigrant and refugees is a terrible life. But of course, for any serious changes in life, you have to be prepared to pay the price. But I didn't expect that to be so harsh and so lonely. And I didn't expect to really deep inside to feel as a foreigner. I wanted so much to flirt with the girls. I could not do it. I didn't know English and they ignored me. I wanted to have something decent to eat. I couldn't afford it. I wanted to go places and I didn't know how to. But with all that, Still, it was better than my village of Neris, because at least intellectually or emotionally or religiously, I was not oppressed. So I'm speaking with Hussein Adieh, educator and author of the autobiography Foreigner, From an Iranian Village to New York City. So was it helpful that there was a Baha'i community in those days? I often say that was really the prayers of my ancestors, and in particular, my father, who was a sincere believer, that helped me to save my sanity and survive so many unfortunate and sometimes dangerous circumstances. Having this faith and having belief that there is something there that I can always hang on to. From very early days when I came to America, after a short time, not right away, because I was so harassed and so involved in survival that I didn't really have much time for Baha'i activity. I didn't even know how to reach them or how to communicate with them. But eventually, when I find them, I came across some really saints in terms of their kindness, in terms of their affection, in terms of their faith, in terms of their sacrifices. So this sort of relation with the Baha'is, even though they could not help me much financially or otherwise, but the idea that they were there, I could go to some meeting, I could enjoy their company, and I could talk with them, it really saved my sanity. So I'm speaking with Hussein Adieh, educator and author of the autobiography, Foreigner from an Iranian village to New York City. 
Hussein, is it possible to read two excerpts, one maybe covering when you were in Iran and then another one in your days in New York? I'd be glad to. First quote is the opening statement on chapter one, the chapter called Sad Society. I remember only darkness when the sun went down, except for a small kerosene lamp's hazy orange glow into which the occasional indistinct figures would appear and then disappear. I remember a torrent of refuse and mud running over the unpaved streets when it rained. I remember women covered in a dark chador, moving like shadows. I remember mullahs in mosques exhorting the faithful to weep for the martyrs. I remember Nevis as a sad society of timeless routine permeated by ignorance. We were so oppressed and so under pressure, our only refuge and salvation was this. Baha'i gatherings in the village were the joyful moments in our life because we were free of insult of the townspeople and could express ourselves openly. We could relax and laugh, drink tea, and have easy conversation. We filled the air with the singing of Baha'i song, chanting the Baha'i sacred writings, filled us with hope about the brilliant future that the leave would emerge from the spread of this faith. We were energized to serve this cause and be a part of making a new world free from orthodoxy and prejudices of the past. So this is one section that I like to cover my sort of life in Iran. But then a couple of sentences that deal with my life in America. To start with, this is the beginning of chapter six, it's called the promised land, and this is how it goes. Everything I knew about America, I had learned from movies. America had streets where Gene Kelly danced and sang in the rain, and a street like Broadway, lined with brightly lit movie houses and theaters. American women were Marilyn Monroe being teased on the train by Tony Curtis. I told you I love to go to movies, by the way, in Iran. American men were Gregory Peck, wooing Audrey Hepburn. America was beautiful people in colorful, expensive clothing, smiling happily in large chrome trim cars, going down a coastal highway in the sun, endlessly in love, casting their worries to the wind. When I arrived in New York, you asked me earlier, about my first days. From the moment I arrived in the United States, I had the feeling of being foreign. I was inside the country, but outside the society. I had arrived with few pairs of Alibaba-style pants, canvas underwear made by my mother, an unsightly large black coat, pistachio, and hair gel, because I fear not finding any in new country. I even came to dislike my name. My father had named me Hussein because his name was Baha'i, a name that has caused him great difficulties when it came to employment. In Iran, where prejudice against Baha'is ran high. In US, though, Hussein sounded Arab and Muslim. 
and mark me as different. So I often use American names like David Mark. Mark in Persian language means death. Later, my marriage certificate listed me as Jimmy Adios. So I'm speaking with Hussein Adieh, educator and author of the autobiography Foreigner from an Iranian village to New York City. Hussein had just read some excerpts from his life in Iran as well as his life in New York City. I just want to go back to my earlier statement. There is a quote, I think is either by Baha'u'llah or Abdul Baha, that said that if they try to quench the light of this fate in their birthplace in Iran, it would raise his head from the ocean. I have attended many conferences and places like India when they opened the temple there. I went to Chile when they opened that and the Samoa and all that. And when I see this temple rise up so nicely, I remember that quote. They try to oppress us and suppress us in our villages and towns in Iran. But thanks God, the faith is spreading and there is a hope for future of humanity. And we are going to be in the spearheading in that future. So uh, I'm speaking with Hussein Adieh, educator and author of the autobiography Foreigner from an Iranian village to New York City. Now, at the time of this interview, it has not been published. When do you anticipate folks can get a hold of your book? I think the book would be out uh, sometime this coming January or February. It's published by uh, George Arnold, which is a wonderful publisher in England, and naturally it would be available through their websites. It would be available to, in America through Baha'i bookstores. It would be available on Amazon and also would be available as an e-book. Well, Hussein, I look forward to being able to see the book out there for people to read. Thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about your story. Thank you, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Hussein Adieh, author of Foreigner, From an Iranian Village to New York City. I'll post a link to the book on my website, abahaiperspective.com, where you can also find this interview and other interviews. You can also find this interview on my YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. That I wanna see, cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary, y'all. I am the change that I wanna see, cause I'm a spiritual what? Yeah, this desert heat struggles endlessly to bury me. Immensity, the feet we face may deter the weak. His words are deep, never bleak to those that seek. The chosen meek who rose relentlessly to herd the sheep. This bird is freed of its cage and earthly bondage. Urgently needs to serve, pay worthy homage. Rise to the task, eyes fixed on the knowledge. Ten thousand angels got my back as promised. Yeah, I have the light that you're dying for. I am the strength in the lion's roar. 
I'm not much different than you, cause I got limits too But love of my creator has defined my core And that's the point where I pivot at So any strength that I'm given, I can give it back Living at times where the world isn't filled with that Spiritual vibe, I'm in the field trying to deal with that Singing that I am the change that I wanna see Cause I'm a spiritual revolutionary I am the change that I wanna see Cause I'm a spiritual revolutionary I am the change that I wanna see Cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary Y'all, I am the change that I wanna see Cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary Start the revolution, spiritual in nature, fueled by the fire of our love for the maker. People say the youth are the future's creators. Well, the future is now, there is no time for later. But we're lost in a world full of talk. Everybody's ears are always clouded by this dross. We're living in disunity, it leaves us at a loss. I feel like we keep our souls in a box. But now our mission is given, we've got the drive, let's be driven. You see, our spiritual lyrics are paired with intricate rhythms. We'll make a world we envision, invent a new way of living. Through revolution of the spirit, we accomplish this bidding. So let me tell you the things that you're prepared to know There's gems of inestimable value that you carry though Our spirit, no need to keep it buried So say it with me, I'ma be a revolutionary, yo I am the change that I wanna see Cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary, yo I am the change that I wanna see Cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary I am the change that I wanna see Cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary, yo I am the change that I wanna see Cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary when the hero's a name, let them mention she With the strength and deed to swim against the stream Let them mention he who lives intentionally Whose will won't bend if the end is seen Let them mention me, let them mention we Who give 100% body, soul, and mentally Let them mention we who serve and bend the knee And pray the blessings of the most flow generously We who rise and fight to see the justice stands With the voice to answer those who cry out What's the plan? And keep us the faith uh-huh. And guidance to lead us to battle erase right. The problems and questions and just that we face We, we slowly, slowly transform in this unholy place. place The kingdom we build in will bring them so late We build in dominion so, so take, take your place, place singing I am the change that I wanna see Cause I am a spiritual revolutionary I am the change that I wanna see Revolutionary. Revolutionary.
prophet stood up on the mountaintop and shouted out with tears in his eyes. Me.
fresh and glad my spirit my spirit my spirit oh god fresh and glad my spirit my spirit my spirit purify my heart Illumine my powers I lay all my affairs in thy hand Oh God thou art my guide and my refuge My refuge My refuge Oh God thou art my guide and my refuge Sorrowful and grieved, I will be a happy and joyful being. I will no longer be full of anxiety. Nor will I let trouble harass me. Anxiety. 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.